Welcome to the KSL Court Report, May 1st. I'm Ben Anderson, joined by Andy Larson, the actual host of this podcast, but he's still in Los Angeles as the Jazz come off a first-round victory over the Los Angeles Clippers. They get a win on the road in Game 7. The Jazz now get ready to go on the road and take on Golden State, where Andy will be flying out a little bit later today. What's the what's the schedule for the Jazz today? I mean, how much is reasonable to expect for them to be able to accomplish to get ready for Game 1 in Golden State? Yeah, not a lot. I mean, they have a what's called a team workout um, schedule today at 1.30 Pacific Time, 2.30 Mountain Time. So um, they you know, expressly didn't call it a practice, which to me tells me that they're going to just be uh, looking at some film, you know, trying to decide who's who's going to be matched up against who, and you know what kind of the initial look is going to be. Um, some some film work, and then get some shots up, basically, and then maybe maybe do some five on zero kind of stuff. But you know, nothing really um, all that strenuous because you know it's it's been a rough playoff series against a really physical Clippers team, and uh, you only have one day off in between, so. Yeah, that's that's kind of what they're going for today, and and we'll see um, if they if they do shoot around tomorrow as well. So, let's worry about the Warriors tomorrow. We'll do another podcast and kind of get you ready for the Jazz second round series. Let's talk about what happened yesterday. Let's talk about what we learned about the Jazz in this first round playoff victory that they had over the Clippers. I mean, overwhelming kind of big picture thoughts about what the Jazz just did. Yeah, I mean, impressive stuff, right? Like, I mean that they went in and, and won three games on the road out of four at, in L.A. Uh, against a pretty good team um, was was good. And, and, I mean, then Game 7 was the best win of them all in terms of just winning that game from start to finish. Uh, defense, uh, I mean, was was spectacular. They, they really limited Chris Paul um, in a way that I didn't think they were going to be able to this series. I thought that the accomplishment uh, that that was maybe most notable was two things. One, Gordon Hayward stepping up like a true star. I mean, he was unbelievable. I asked you before this series, and I was with you. I didn't know what to expect from Gordon Hayward. I mean, I thought he would be good. I didn't think he would be this good, certainly not after the first two games where he really struggled to shoot the ball. Uh, but, you know, his first first-round series uh, against the Spurs when the Jazz got swept seven years ago or whatever that was, he just wasn't good, and he was playing 30 minutes a night. It's not like he wasn't getting playing time, but that's how much he's grown. And he got to the point where he and Chris Paul were were clearly the two best players on the floor, even when Gobert was out there, even when Blake Griffin was out there and healthy. Gordon Hayward's just really amazing. He's just a, he's a legit all-NBA player. He's a legit star. He's a legit max player who can win playoff series, and I thought he was the reason more than anybody else that the Jazz uh, came out with the victory here. And Quinn Snyder's ability to take things away that the Clippers were trying to do throughout the series, I thought was great. I mean, he found a way to put Chris Paul in situations where they were okay with Chris Paul succeeding and and ways that he wasn't going to beat you by getting four other guys on the floor involved. It was going to be he and uh, DeAndre Jordan, and that's what they did. I mean, they completely eliminated guys like J.J. Redick from this series, so they were total non-factors. Yeah, um, to go to your Gordon Hayward point first, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, you look at it, in the six games, he didn't have food poisoning. He put up 27 points, eight rebounds, three assists, um, on 46% shooting from the field, 44% shooting from three, and 96% shooting from the free throw line. Like, So what, he's five, he's five points above his season average scoring, which is absurd. 
His efficiency is up through the roof because he wasn't shooting that well. What that's almost five percentage points higher shooting the three. I mean, it's got to be close to ten percentage points higher at the free throw line. I mean, that's he stepped up his game. You don't see that. Guys don't get better in the playoffs, especially when you can game plan them with guys like Luke Richard and Bob Mute. Yeah, I, and I, I thought you called it earlier than anybody else that I saw that Hayward had kind of figured out Luke Bamute, and, and Snyder, too, deserves a lot of credit for getting Gordon in situations where he had space and, and the ability to go to the rim. And I thought Joe Johnson getting out there and forcing Doc Rivers to have to question where he's going to put his best defensive player or who he's going to game plan for, and even Joe Ingles, when Joe Ingles had a couple of big games early in the season early in the series really pressured Doc Rivers to have to worry about those guys on the wing and when you do that Gordon Hayward will kill you and that's what he did and Gordon Hayward went out he was great he was reliable he hit huge shots when he would have a bad first half he'd have a brilliant second half and he did that seemingly most games he was great last night in the fourth quarter and it wasn't just scoring I mean there was a play last night everyone remembers the jump ball with Chris Paul and and Joe Ingles Joe Ingles is going to get credit for winning that jump ball he didn't touch it but Chris Paul tapped it. Gordon Hayward, I think, gets in front of Jamal Crawford, taps the ball over. It ends up in George Hill's hands, and the Jazz get a timeout out of it. Gordon Hayward wasn't involved in the actual jump ball and won the jump ball for the Jazz, and that's the type of winning play you have to have in the fourth quarter. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and it's, you know, I thought George Hill had maybe his second best game of the series, um, and again, was I, I thought was pretty good in, in uh, containing Chris Paul. And, and we haven't talked about Derek Favors yet, who. Maybe my defensive MVP for the Jazz last night, just because of what he was able to do uh, defensively on the perimeter. His first two plays in the game, he subs in, what, 10.50 left in the first quarter? Maybe not quite that early, but, you know, nine minutes left in the first quarter because Rudy Gobert picks up that second foul call. The first two plays he makes, he grabs a defensive rebound that uh, Chris Paul fouls him on. The next play, he grabs an offensive rebound over DeAndre Jordan, kicks it out to George Hill for a three-point shot. George Hill got involved out of it. It kind of tuned him in, uh, shooting the ball, though he had hit a bucket earlier in the quarter. But Favors just came in, made two hustle plays, grit plays right away that got the Jazz points directly. And and I think that set the tone for just because Gobert's out, the Jazz don't need to lose this game. And I thought that was all... Uh, what Favors was able to do in the first quarter. I was tweeting about it this morning. He, he had two assists in the first quarter that led to five points. He had five rebounds. I think he had eight points. I mean, that's an unheard of first quarter. You did that for a game, and, yeah. I mean, you know, you're averaging 32 and 20. <laughs> he was really that good in the first half, and then it really didn't stop. He didn't score at that same rate, but but he never stopped being a huge impact player in the game. Yeah, I mean, he ended up with 17 and 11, which, you know, you'll take every time. Right. I, I, I thought... Um, he his that mid range jumper or floater was going down for him, uh, and the Jazz were able to find him in space and and take advantage of that. And you know it's not the most efficient shot in the world, but when it's going in, it, you can you can punish defenses with it, um, especially in late shot clock stuff where they think they have everything else uh, kind of covered up. So yeah, I, I thought Fave was great on on both ends of the floor. Um, heck, him getting eleven rebounds, including four offensive. Um, we've seen him be not as explosive on the glass this year because of the injury, and, and he was able to get some some key rebounds, uh, you know, in in ways that I didn't think he was going to he was going to be able to. It is so feast or famine seemingly with mm-hmm. him when he's out there because last night again he was great. George Hill in the first quarter 
takes a falling out of bounds baseline fadeaway jumper that has no chance of going in, and Hayward puts it back. I mean, he catches it in midair and tips it in over Paul Pierce. It doesn't look like Paul Pierce is in the game. It looks like old 23-year-old Derek Favors, 22-year-old Derek Favors with great springs, the guy we thought he would be when he came into the league. It looks like, okay, his, his health is 100%. He's fine. But then when he's hurt, I mean, he's just so incapable of having a huge impact on the game. So I thought the Jazz were, were very lucky to get the uh, Derek Favors that they got last night and good for Favors for stepping up and playing well because most of his minutes came against DeAndre Jordan, which is a tough matchup for anyone in the NBA, much less a guy who's smaller than DeAndre Jordan is and certainly far less athletic. Favors came in, was great. He passed the ball well. No bad turnovers for the Jazz. I mean, not not from Favors, not from anybody. There wasn't that fourth yeah. quarter turnover with the exception of Rodney Hood not being able to get Gordon Hayward the ball uh, past Ray Felton that, that ended up turning the ball over in the, in the uh, backcourt. Other than that, I mean, I think I don't think uh, there were huge, horrible turnovers throughout the whole series, and that's just good execution. That's five guys on the floor knowing how to play with each other. Yeah, and, and you know, a couple things there. First, the, the Jazz did have a turnover problem during the regular season, right? Right. So that they they tightened that up, and the playoffs is a big deal. Uh, and and then you you talk about Derek Favors being a a hot and cold player, and I, and I agree with that. It kind of depends on uh, how his knee is feeling and and whether or not that that mid range stuff is going down. But I'd also say that just there's a way to game plan with him that is effective, and there's a way to game plan with him that's very ineffective. And I think we saw the ineffective versions in Game 2 and Game 3 where he's a drop big in the pick and roll, and he's not really guarding either Chris Paul or DeAndre Jordan. And the Jazz kind of intentionally switched that, limited Chris Paul's space on the perimeter, um, and let DeAndre Jordan get the ball um, you know, 15, 20 feet from the rim. And, you know, he can make some plays. And he was, you know, his stat line yesterday was great, 24 and 16. Uh, but ultimately, you'll take that over the, the Chris Paul Maestro performance. Uh, and you can foul him when he catches the ball 15 feet away from the hoop versus three feet from the hoop or when he's in the air. And when you can do that with DeAndre Jordan, and he has to, like you said, kind of follow Chris Paul further out on the floor because he's being trapped and Chris Paul just can't throw a ball at his height 18 feet, 28 feet across the floor to get it to him. Well, then, yeah, then he has to put the ball on the floor or he has to take two steps. And then that's how you end up putting him at the free throw line 15 times where he shoots, he only makes six of those. That's just, that's good adjustments from the Jazz. That's, that's great defensive call or play calling uh, from Quinn Snyder. And that's something obviously the Jazz had worked on. It was brilliant. It worked. And it kept DeAndre Jordan from destroying the Jazz in a game where they didn't have their rim protector. And like you said, he was still nine of 12 from the floor. I mean, he shot really well until he went to the free throw line. But those guys were tired. Both Chris Paul and DeAndre Jordan, I thought, were beat. Uh, one of the things that Zach Lowe had talked about in his podcast that he did with Locke uh, earlier in the week was that at the end of DeAndre Jordan's runs, his stints on the floor when he's seven minutes into the game, eight minutes into his time on the floor, he just has nothing. And you saw that at several times last night, and the Jazz would get two or three baskets back to back to back, and they would have to call a timeout and get DeAndre Jordan out of the game. And then once you get him out of the game, it's easy to get into the paint, and it's easy to score there because most Bates isn't going to stop you there. So th- those were just little areas where the Jazz were deeper and better than the Clippers, and that's one of the reasons they won the series. Yeah, I mean, you look at last night, they played 12 guys in the first half, right? Like, that never happened no. in a Game 7. And they were great. All those guys were, 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 with the exception of, you know, Neto was really bad. I had two possessions where you just thought, okay, he doesn't belong in the game. Shelvin Mack was a non-factor. Withy was okay, but he's just Jeff Withy. Otherwise, I mean, Exum had as good a four-minute stint in the first half as I've ever seen him play. I mean, he, he was involved mm-hmm. in almost every single play on both sides of the floor when he was out there. He even had a huge rebound in the second half over the back of DeAndre Jordan that I'd never seen Exum go up and grab a rebound like that. So a credit to him for being tuned in when he hasn't been a part of this series since, what, Game 2 or Game 3? I mean, he came back and made big plays, had a great assist. 
uh, he, he was good. He was really good. And, and I think that was the type of effort you needed from him where Chris Paul was already tired. After Chris Paul had a brilliant first six games of the series. I mean, he was just so MVP level, unbelievable good uh, that when he got to the seventh game, they're just you can't expect him to keep doing it. And he went six of 19, and a couple of those were just late shots in a game that was decided when the Jazz were up double digits with a couple of minutes to go. But still, I mean, he was inefficient. He was not slicing and dicing. His timeout, I thought, in the first quarter where he got into the corner, and you tweeted about it. You said during the break he was yelling at his teammates or he was really unhappy that I think J.J. Redick had brought Boris Diaw back over to, to him to allow him to be trapped there in the corner. Yeah. Chris Paul usually can dribble out of that. I just don't think he had the energy to do it by Game 7. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was he was deep in that corner there. So I, I, I think if he could have dribbled out of it, he would have, um, and, and instead of calling the timeout. But he was clearly very frustrated that that happened and he yelled at J.J. for for kind of what he saw as, as, as him doing the wrong thing. And, you know, knowing how smart Chris Paul was, is it probably was. Um, I, I thought Clippers, the Clippers PR had a really great stat on Chris Paul that he was the first player in NBA history to d- get through a playoff series through the first six games with 25 points, 10 assists, and five rebounds per game on 50, 40, 90 shooting. So 50% from the field, 40% from three, and 90% from the free throw line. Uh, the first player in NBA history to do, to score that much, to pass that much on that efficient of uh, you know, shooting and and that the Jazz limited that in Game Seven was was a big surprise to me because I, I didn't I thought you would you know put up a desperate Chris Paul Game Seven performance just like you know, I, I think everyone thought they thought that he would. You know, if you were to remove the game tag before every single one of these games and just pick them out and watch them and not know the scenario of what the records were the two teams going into each game in this series, Game Seven was the least exciting game of all of them. I mean, I thought Game 7 really had very... I mean, it wasn't in doubt all that much. I know J.J. Redick hit a 3 to cut it to 8 with 3 minutes and 30 seconds left, but, I mean, ask anybody in the NBA, do you want an 8-point lead with 3 minutes and 30 <laughs> seconds left? I mean, you just by dribbling the ball 3 possessions at 24 seconds, you, you've cut that game in half, and then they need to execute perfectly to get back into the game in the time that's remaining. I mean, that that's almost a must-win when you're up 8 with that little time. It was just not that difficult of a game. It didn't look like for the Jazz. They didn't have to be brilliant, with the exception of a couple of crazy shots, like Boris Dial. What it looked like it was going to be a four-point play. His toe was on the line. Other than that, there wasn't the alley-oop three-point shot that you saw from George Hill or the buzzer beater from from uh, Joe Johnson to win it. The, the Jazz were just better. They were just in control, and I thought they were fine throughout the entire game. And it, it felt early like that might be the case. Yeah, and you know they won by thirteen rather than winning by a yeah. single possession. So. You can't point to one shot that made the difference, right? I mean, they just were better the entire time, like you said. Um, yeah, I mean, Game 7 was definitely the least exciting, except for the fact that it was a Game 7. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I think that, that was legitimately surprising to everybody. And, um, you know, I think you have to give the, the Jazz credit for kind of coming up with that, that last answer that the Clippers didn't have. So I think bringing everybody in the organization into the, into ranking, you know, who was most important for the Jazz in this series victory over the Clippers, Hayward has to be number one. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think you can make a good argument for Joe Johnson being number two. Dennis Lindsay probably is number three, and maybe Joe or maybe Dennis Lindsay is number two 
behind Joe Johnson because he went out and got guys like George Hill, who was just not flustered at all by what Chris Paul was doing. He wasn't always great against Chris Paul, but I don't think Chris Paul had an easy series. He never had a night off not having to guard George Hill. You still have to pay attention to him. He's still going to make you work to get anything on the offensive side of the ball. We know what Joe Johnson was able to do early in the series, hitting big shots. And then Boris Diaw last night was just, he was amazing. He was great. He was four of six from the floor. What, he finished with, what, 10 points? Uh, hit big shots, had big rebounds, got out in fa- uh, on a fast break for a dunk. And those were all additions that Dennis Lindsay was just savvy and kind of you know scoured the league to find out what was going to be available to Jazz and found three guys who really fit on this roster because this team is built really well to do what the Jazz did last night, which was go 12 deep when they have to, when the Clippers can't yeah. do that. Yeah, and you know you, you go back to Dennis Lindsay seeing something in Joe Ingles. It really yeah. matters that there's a lot of credit there because he – coached against Joe Ingles in, in the EuroLeague and, and saw something there and decided, you know, he, he'd be a helpful piece for the Jazz. Um, I, like, you, you go and then, you know, he was 4 of 6 last night, or, you know, Rodney Hood was 4 of 6 last night. You know, you, you get these efficient contributions from your role players, and all of a sudden you just become impossible to defend. I thought Rudy Gobert... Obviously, going down in the first game, coming back, what, he come back in game four for the Jazz? He come back in game three? Four. Uh, yeah, four. Comes back in, games four, in game four. You lose Gordon Hayward for half the, half the game to food uh, illness, whatever it was, food poisoning. I didn't think Gobert had this huge series. I mean, I didn't think Gobert was necessarily great over the seven-game series. He certainly had some bright spots. Game four, he was a huge energy boost, and even though he only played 25 minutes, obviously he had a double-double and played well. He was a non-factor. In fact, he was a negative by picking up six fouls in 13 minutes last night. I didn't think the Jazz could win without Gobert being transcendent in this series, and they totally did. And that was all on Gordon Hayward. That was all on Quinn Snyder and how this team was built. And that's stunning. This team is better than I thought they were. Yeah, and you know, I think we'll need the Jazz will need Rudy Gobert in the second round in, in a very different way. And, and, you know, just because I think DeAndre is a, a difficult matchup for Rudy because he, you know, he can answer that, that length. And, and Rudy doesn't really bother DeAndre around the rim. Uh, I, I think Rudy will bother the Warriors around the rim. And, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I think that it says something that the Jazz were able to win just kind of from their own wing players' skill and length and, and, and depth on the floor. I, I, you know, if I'm starting a team and I need to pick a center, I'm probably taking Rudy Gobert number one overall in the NBA as far as true centers go right now. The impact he had this year, because I think he's that good defensively. I might take DeAndre Jordan too because he, I didn't think he was great last night, and he had what, 24 and 17 or something ridiculous. I mean, he, DeAndre Jordan is is that level of player. He he's a true star. He's an all star as well, and I think he helps you win games. Uh, DeAndre Jordan's just great, and that's a tough matchup for for Rudy. And then yeah, you, you go over Anthony Davis. DeAndre Jordan? Okay, I mean, you're going to take Anthony Davis depending on where you're considering him a center or a power forward. I'm thinking true guys who are around the paint who aren't stepping out and shooting threes. But, yeah, I mean, Anthony Davis is certainly probably, uh, if you're doing top ten talented players, I would take him over both Rudy and DeAndre. But I also want to see these guys start winning games, and I haven't seen uh, Anthony Davis do that a whole lot yet to his career, and, and I still think that's something that matters, and I think Rudy Gobert has figured out how to get his team to win games at a high rate and will continue to do that. 
the Jazz don't have to worry about that in the second in the second round. Though JaVale McGee, I think, is leading the NBA uh, playoffs in PER right now because <laughs> all he does is catch lobs in blowout games. He's still going to do some of the lob things and benefit from some big dunk opportunities that you saw from DeAndre. He's not the same in t- impact type player. And I think Rudy Gobert is going to be far better in the second round. And I think you're going to see how valuable he is to a basketball team. And I'm not sure you saw that against the Clippers. Yeah, I agreed with that. And, I, I, you know, JaVale pales in comparison to uh, what Rudy can do. I mean, he, he, I think we saw that a little bit in Game 4, right? That the, When I say Game 4, I mean the, of the regular season matchup between the Jazz and the Warriors, which the Jazz won. And sure, they sat Clay Thompson, and I think that was a big factor in that game. But I think just the sheer difference between Rudy and, and JaVale was, was on display in that contest. So big picture conversation for both teams now for the Jazz and for the Clippers. First of all, the Jazz have done what they've needed to to show Gordon Hayward that it's worth sticking around. Now it's up to Gordon Hayward to choose whether or not he does that, and that's fine, but at least the Jazz made an argument. I think the Jazz made a really good case that they've got a number two star next to him and Rudy Gobert. I think Dennis Lindsay has made a case that he knows how to build teams, that know how to win series. I think that's really great, and that Gordon Hayward can come in here, be the number one guy, and be successful and win series. I think that was really important for the Jazz, and I think if you lose the last two games, when you had a closeout game in Game 6 and lose it, if you were to go to Game 7 and lose it to the Clippers, I think that would have been really disheartening for, for Hayward. And I, I think this will help if the Jazz end up re-signing him in the offseason. I think this series will play a role. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, kind of how you end up feeling about the Round 2 games or series against the Warriors matters matters as well. And, it is, you know, of course, what they do on draft day, if they make any trades, acquisitions, whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a big difference between winning in the first round and, and showing that you, um, you know, at least are a top four team in the West, and then from there you can you can move upwards and onwards as as these guys kind of grow and develop. And I, you know, I think it's fair to say Gordon Hayward's in his prime, but someone like Rudy Gobert may still have more improvement. And right. guys like Dante Exum, Rodney Hood, um, hell, even you know someone like Trey Lyles. Trey Lyles for sure. You know, may end up being something. So. Um, yeah, I, I think you you make you can make the case that we're already very good, and there's a lot of room to grow. Yeah, Trey Lyles is. I mean, this is probably more for the off season to talk about. But if you could get Trey Lyles from his rookie season and just keep progressing from that, whatever happened to him in season two is just bizarre. I mean, that was a true sophomore slump. If you get back to the guy he was in his rookie season, where he could score close to thirty points on any given night shoot the ball really well, be a real distributor, put the ball on the floor. I mean, the Jazz could have used that guy all season long, much less all series long. And I think you'll see it even further now coming up against the Golden State Warriors. The Jazz could use another guy to come in and get buckets off the bench, and that's who Trey Lyle should be. And I would be surprised I would be surprised if the Jazz gave up on him this offseason and tried to trade him unless there was an obvious no-brainer if you could go back and get a top 100 player in exchange for him and a late first-round draft pick. You know, if you could do that, yeah. pull the trigger, that's fine. I don't think that's likely, and I think the Jazz probably roll the dice with Trey Lyles again going into next season. As for the Clippers, we know they're not going to have enough money to bring everybody back because they're not going to pay $300 million in salary. Even though they can, uh, the Balmers can't. Hey, the Jazz can. The Millers are billionaires. If you want to spend that money, you can. But it really doesn't make sense to do it, especially with the team that got eliminated in the first round. J.J. Redick is likely gone. Most Bates is likely gone. Chris Paul 
and Blake Griffin both have the opportunities to leave, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to see Chris Paul turn down the extra $50 million he can get by signing with the Clippers to go play for a team like the San Antonio Spurs, if it, if that becomes an option. If it looks like yeah. Pau Gasol's not going to pick up his option and wants to get one more big payday because he shot, whatever, 55% from the three-point line this year and can go get it somewhere if he wants it, Chris Paul could go join a team like that and know he's going to compete for championships for the next five years, and the Clippers absolutely cannot guarantee that. Or he can go back to New Orleans, you know, and, and sure. uh, you know play with Boogie Cousins and, and Demarcus, or sorry, Boogie Cousins and Anthony Davis, yeah. which you know is is its own weird setup, but it's it's maybe different and maybe less frustrating than the one he's in, and potentially I mean, viable. Yeah, I, I think it, he's. I think it's most likely he stays, and and the Clippers find some other way to run it back. Um, I, I do think that team needs a different, as something different in the coaching staff or front office where. I really feel like their offense is so my turn, your turn, right? Yep. Like where we're gonna run a we're gonna run a Chris Paul pick and roll right now, or we're gonna run a Blake Griffin post up right now, or you know we're gonna let JJ Redick go off of three different screens and, and try to get him going. And I just don't know that that's like a great coaching idea in 2017, where you know I think the Warriors and Spurs and, and a little bit the Jazz have taught us that read and react is the way to go. And I don't know that the Clippers are there, despite how good and talented they are. Um, you know, I think some of that is just the personnel they have, that beyond Chris Paul and Blake Griffin, they don't have really good passers. And, you know, I think some of it is, is the coaching. And, and I think it's something the Jazz should keep an eye on, of the danger of paying three guys 85, 70, whatever, $75 million and, have, mm-hmm. and just saying, you know what, We'll just fill it in with role pieces around it and think that Austin Rivers will come in and get the job done or Bob Mute will get the job done, even though they've got some nice pieces like J.J. Redick. You know, they have Jamal Crawford and Paul Pierce that have come in that don't have a ton left in the tank, certainly when we're talking about Paul Pierce, but thinking that that's enough. It's not enough. It's not, it's not the only way to win games, and it's certainly a hard way when you do lose one of those chunk pieces versus having maybe two guys that make $12.5 million each versus the one guy who you're overpaying to get to $25 million. And, and not that particular... I wouldn't say that any of those three are overpaid at $25 million, but right. but when they get injured, you just you lose a third of your production. Yeah, and, you know, in particular, I think the Jazz draft better than the Clippers do, right? You yeah. know, like, that's that to me is the biggest way you can get cheap production is, is out of the draft in those first four years with the rookie contract. Um, and the Clippers can't at all. You know, they're, they're terrible drafters, and then they, they trade all their picks away for guys like uh, Jared Dudley for half a season, yeah. right? So... Um, yeah, I, I think ultimately the Jazz will be in better shape because I think Dennis Lindsay thinks about these sort of things in a way that Doc Rivers is probably too short-term sighted in order to look at you know how this affects his team in 2018, 2019, 2020. And, and I mean, you're right with the draft. It's so important to be able to do that because when you look at the guys that they have drafted that are on this team, I mean, Bryce Johnson didn't get a single minute in this series. Right, no, and they didn't even, you know, they... they Rested guys throughout throughout the season at times, and Bryce Johnson didn't get any minutes then. You know, like give your guys a chance and and show and for them to show what they can do. Or you know, honestly, I, I'm not convinced Bryce Johnson is going to be a good pro. And maybe last year's draft was just bad, and you know they they don't have the the good opportunities to to make those kind of picks happen. But I, in my mind, they just have to draft more likely players to be contributors because nothing has worked out for them so far since they drafted Blake Griffin number one overall. But yeah, yeah, I mean, look at other than Blake, 
who did they draft that's on this team? They didn't draft Austin, Austin Rivers. They didn't draft DeAndre, or they did draft DeAndre, and that's been a great pick. J.J. Redick, yeah. though, didn't draft him. Chris Paul, not a draft pick. Paul Pierce, not a draft pick. Jamal Crawford, Raymond Felt, Maurice Spates, Brandon Bass, Wesley, all these guys, they, they didn't draft them. They're not developing right. anything. There's no culture that's being built there. And, and then again, I mean, I, I, look, Chris Paul was incredible. He's unbelievable. He's had five straight seasons where he's had a lead in a playoff series and not closed it out. At some point, that falls on your shoulders. Like, I, I get that he's great. I get that he puts up unbelievable numbers. I get that he had the, the numbers you were talking about earlier that their PR staff put out. You have to be able to close out series. The Jazz did it with a less talented player in Gordon Hayward, and Gordon Hayward was the man. Gordon Hayward yeah. didn't go to Rodney Hood in the fourth quarter and say, all right, Rodney, game six, I need you. He couldn't do that. Gordon Hayward found a way to get it done in game seven, and Chris Paul doesn't. And, and I don't know if that's my old belief that you can't have your point guard be your best player on the floor. And when you do, maybe every 20 years, maybe every 30 years, you can win a championship. And Steph did it, and Isaiah Thomas did it. Magic Johnson was six foot nine. He doesn't count. You know, you know, you LeBron James is a point guard. He's six nine, and he's the best athlete we've ever seen. Okay, whatever. That's fine. You can't have a guy who plays strictly below the rim and expect to win championships. And I think that's why the Warriors made it so important to go out and get Kevin Durant because you not just because he's the second best player in the NBA, and of course you'll take it, but you need a guy like that that's a big wing that can score because it gets really hard late in seasons when the t- ball slows down for guys that are under six foot five to get shots off. Yeah, and you know, I think I, I think you're right. I, I do like I, I I may disagree with you on like that you can't win with with the point guard thing. I think we've just seen, um, you know, we we just saw staff. We you've talked about Isaiah, and you know, sure, every twenty years, but that's you know, that's like the number of how many good championship caliber teams have there been in the last twenty years? Ten, and so right. two of them were led by point guards. Well, sure. that's what you'd expect given that there are five positions, right? Like, I ultimately think that. The biggest problem with the team is is not Chris Paul, and, and I think you just have to surround him with better talent. And sure, I think maybe you can say he needs to take over at the end of games more. But the Jazz were double teaming him. Like what? Oh, I, I no, I don't know if it's that Chris Paul's not doing enough. I mean, I just don't know if he's capable of doing enough. I mean, Chris Paul did everything that's humanly imaginable. He was unreal in this series, but because he's six feet tall. And because he has to go up against guys who are bigger than him on every single trip down the floor, and the Jazz will double him and then put Joe Johnson on him to back him down, I just think by Game 7, is anyone surprised, just given that formula that he was 6 of 19 with tired legs and couldn't do anything in the fourth quarter? I mean, just the formula of being that small over two weeks guarding guys that have a 30-pound, 40-pound advantage over you and are 6 inches taller than you are, I just think it wears the body down. And I think that's why having guys like Shaq, and LeBron that are just so physically dominant, Tim Duncan that are so physically dominant, they just wear you down. And it's hard to stop them when it comes late because they can get easy baskets when nobody else can. And, and, and I don't think that ever becomes the case with Chris Paul. There's not easy baskets. Everything he has to do has to have two or three dribbles off a of pick and roll. He has to pull up in the paint and shoot over someone bigger than he is. I just think that wears on you. I think it's exhausting. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with that. And then I think you have to say you've got a team, you want to have a team that punishes it, punishes themselves if, uh, oh, sorry, punishes the opponent right. if you, you switch off, right? Like, so if you have your 6'9 guy guarding Chris Paul, fine, then we're going to exploit the small forward matchup where you have whatever else going on, right? And for the Jazz, that was Luke Bamute, and there was no punishment at all, right? Like, and ultimately, you just need better talent around those guys. So you know, it's, it's a team game. It's not about Chris Paul going out there and scoring 50. It's, I, to me, it's just about finding better shots 
through having five better players on the floor. Right. It's not Chris Paul's personality. And that's not right. what I'm and saying. It's, it's not It's not his lack of desire to win, where I think a guy like Boogie Cousins, maybe that actually plays a role. It's just the fact that I think it's really hard to do when you're that size. I think it, yeah. you know, we saw it, the, the most famous play now is, is Steph Curry not being able to get past Kevin Love in Game 7 to get a three-point shot off. And Kevin Love's a horrendous perimeter defender, and he just couldn't do it because that late in the series, it's really hard to do. We say Russell Westbrook has an infinite motor that never goes away. He was shooting 40-footers at the end of games all throughout the playoffs because he was tired, because he wasn't going to go and dunk on everybody because he didn't have the energy to do it. I just think at some point that wears on you. Not having Blake Griffin, too, is just—we can't overstate that enough. I mean, that is the reason the Jazz won this playoff series, more so than anything Gordon Hayward did, more so than anything Quinn Snyder drew up or or Rudy Gobert coming back. When you lose a top-15 player in the NBA, you shouldn't be expected to compete at the same level, and they weren't able to. I mean, if we're going to give the Jazz credit for all the injuries that they've faced this season, we have to give the Clippers credit for what they faced in these playoffs. Right. And when they lost Blake Griffin, they just didn't have those extra 20 possessions that were, even as you mentioned, my turn, your turn, my turn, your turn. It was somebody else's turn where DeAndre Jordan didn't have to go to the free throw line or Chris Paul didn't have to make magic happen because Blake Griffin's either going to get to the free throw line or at least he's going to get a reasonable shot off as long as he doesn't turn his back to the basket, in which case he doesn't know what he's doing on the basketball floor. But uh, other than that, I mean, I think once you lost Blake Griffin, the Clippers were almost doomed, but good for the Jazz. They they put their foot on the neck of the Clippers, and they never really took it off, and they were the better team in Game 4, 5, and 7. Uh, game 6, they struggled to hit shots again like they did in Game 5, but the Jazz figured out a win to game five, win, figured out a way to win Game 5. I guess that's what it takes, and you, you, take the, you play the hand that you're dealt, and the Jazz were held, dealt a hand that didn't involve Blake Griffin. I think they're all too happy to do it. I think overall the Jazz had a great series. I think they've done... Enough to call this a successful season, regardless of what happens against Golden State. I mean, if you get swept by Golden State, there's a reason, because Golden State's incredible. They just swept the Blazers. It wasn't close at any point in that series, with the exception of, what, one game three, where there was a little bit of energy. The Jazz should be able to put up a little bit more excitement there uh, than what the Blazers were able to do. I think think, uh, Rudy Gobert is just a really difficult matchup for the the Warriors. I think he's going to have a big impact, and we'll have to talk about this more coming up tomorrow. Any yep. other thoughts on the series overall for the Jazz? Any kind of final points? Uh, no, I, you know I think we covered it. You know, Derek Favors was was great in, in in won the Jazz a few games. Joe Johnson was great, and Gordon Hayward was consistently um, one of the best players on the floor. I mean, we, we've I, I think we learned a lot about what this team did, and, and really about Dennis Lindsay and Quinn Snyder's ability to uh, you know get the, uh, their talent and it, it was right for a playoff situation. I think that that says a lot. All right, guys, if you want to sponsor the show, email Andy at alarson at ksl.com. It's alarson at ksl.com. If you have thoughts, things you'd like us to add to the podcast, questions you'd like to ask us, tweet us uh, at Andy B. Larson on Twitter or at Ben K. Fan on Twitter. Andy is in Golden State, so if you have questions about what's going on in Oakland, what's it like in the environment, what are the Jazz doing in their downtime, Andy's the guy to ask. Again, find him on Twitter at Andy B. Larson. We're going to be back with you tomorrow with another podcast as we get you ready uh, for the Jazz second round series against the Golden State Warriors, and the Jazz are still playing in May, uh, which I think is a huge accomplishment for the Jazz. Andy, we'll talk to you again tomorrow. Sounds good. There he is, Andy Larson. I'm Ben Anderson. We'll be back with you tomorrow with more KSL Court Report.